This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Monday, November 20th. On the pod today, the federal government's fall economic update comes Tuesday. Reports of billions of dollars for housing construction, a crackdown on short-term rentals, and subsidies for clean tech. We'll break down what more we can expect from the federal government's fiscal update. And premature babies and critically ill Palestinians are transported out of Gaza. As Israel says it has more proof Hamas is using hospitals as headquarters. We'll get an update on the situation in Gaza from Doctors Without Borders. Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christian Freeland will present the fall economic statement tomorrow. And CBC News has learned some details about what will be in that fiscal update, including that it will focus heavily on affordable housing with billions of dollars in loans and funding for new home construction. The CBC's Karina Roman has dug out those details and she joins us now. So Karina, what more do we know about what will be in this fall economic statement tomorrow? Well, those loans you speak of, the amount, the dollar amount we've been given by a senior government source who's not been authorized to <laughs> speak publicly, uh, 15 billion in loans for rental units. And these are projects of five units or more uh, for each project. These are 10-year loans at favorable rates. That was the wording I was given. Um, And they're hoping that that could create 30,000 units uh, across the country. Then you have $1 billion, not in loans, but in a fund for affordable housing. They're thinking not-for-profit, cooperative social housing. Um, This is direct funding, as I said. Then as you mentioned uh, in your introduction, uh, a crackdown on short-term rentals. Uh, we're thinking, you know, Airbnb and, and, and that kind of um, rental. New tax rules to make it less lucrative and make it more likely to be for long-term tenants as opposed to these uh, co- competitors for hotel rooms, that kind of thing. And then there's going to be this uh, Canadian mortgage charter, uh, which is basically codifying existing guidelines on how mortgage lenders need to treat homeowners, especially those who are at financial risk, uh, but also um, new rules uh, that they're going to bring in to be more, I guess you could say, sympathetic uh, and and helpful to people. To reassure people who yes. might be worried with higher mortgage payments and higher interest rates about exactly. the security As of their biggest investment. they're renewing, especially the next couple of years, it's a tough situation out there. Um, there will be other affordability measures. Those details were not uh, given to me, uh, but we will uh, see changes to the Competition Act beyond what's already been proposed in Bill C-56. That's mostly with an eye on the grocery uh, and food um, sector. Uh, They also are planning to move ahead with commitments from the last budget that haven't rolled out yet, in particular uh, the clean tech credits, uh, tax credits that they've already announced, but now there'll be further details on how those are going to roll out. Right, okay. It's interesting, the uh, the, uh, favorable interest loans uh, for rental properties coming on the heels of the GST uh, being removed. So a doubling down on that policy there to increase the rental supply. So that's what we know is going to be in it. But all indications are that this is going to be a slimmer, more focused, more traditional fall economic statement rather than a mini budget that we've seen in the past. So what do we know about what is not going to be in this update? Yeah, so none of this is considered big spending by the government. The word they've been using is restrained, uh, and and that's because we're dealing with slow growth right now, and the projections are probably worse than they were in Mm -hmm. the spring budget. Uh, High interest rates is making borrowing not just expensive for everyone, uh, but the government as well. Um, And so, for example, there's no expectation 
position that PharmaCare will be in this uh, update. And even Jagmeet Singh, who's the big proponent, leader of the NDP, of getting a PharmaCare, it's part of their supply and confidence uh, agreement, he even said he doesn't expect yeah. to see that uh, tomorrow. And we know that the sticking point for the, those ongoing negotiations, as he uh, characterized it, is this universal single-payer versus a more targeted PharmaCare program. So that's a lot of money that they still need to figure out. Uh, restrained or not, what we also likely are not going to see is a plan to get to a balanced budget. The fiscal situation is so tight. Uh, yes, it's a restrained budget in their perspective, but there are still spending initiatives. There are still demands from the NDP in order to continue their support of the Liberals. So all indications are that some kind of trajectory that will show us when or if or how the deficits will eventually become zero. Not likely to see that tomorrow. Right. With the deteriorating economic situation, all the global uncertainty, how could you credibly do it? Uh, it's probably going to be the explanation. All right, Karina, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Karina Roman here with me in Ottawa. Okay, so for more on Tuesday's fall economic statement, we're going to turn to some experts. Jimmy Jean is the chief economist at Desjardins. Armin Yelnesian is the Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers at the Atkinson Foundation. It's good to speak with you both. You're going to join us tomorrow to react to this thing. But, but Jimmy, let, let's start with some pre-action. What do you make of what uh, Karina laid out just now? Money in tr- form of loans uh, for, for rental housing construction, um, but no massive spending is what we're hearing at this point in time. Yeah, and I, I think this is the right approach. Uh, and I think on housing in general, they've been moving uh, pretty fast in, in recent months. Uh, and we're finally seeing some acceleration in the housing uh, accelerator fund. And it looks like there will be uh, a number of agreements uh, with uh, municipalities to tap into the $4 billion uh, fund. Uh, you know, there, there's also uh, speculation that uh, they, they, they could remove tax deductibility advantages for, for those owners of short-term rentals, as uh, was just described. So, uh, and, and, and this addition of providing, uh, you know, affordable loans for home builders, I think it comes to complement what has already been uh, done in terms of removing the GST and really speed up uh, those uh, purpose-built rental uh, construction. So I think it goes in the right direction. At the same time, there are loans, not uh, expenditures. Uh, so uh, I think those will uh, be, I think that you really have to focus on, on housing, and that's what uh, this suggests. Yeah, pr- presumably the, the loans uh, that, what, what is built with those loans would be the collateral uh, against it. So it would help on the balance sheet. Uh, Armina, what's your sense of what we know so far? Because we always get a few details in advance of these big days. Uh, what's your take? It's hard to see that there will be any major surprises. What was interesting to me last year this time when they did their fall economic uh, statement, it was like a steady-as-she-goes update uh, in the wake of a 40-year record high spike in inflation. And it was we didn't even get the so-called grocery rebate till the, uh, the budget the following spring. It was just like, yeah, our number one concern is not blowing up the deficit which doesn't really speak to what the opposition is talking about. So the opposition comes in three different forms, people that are really struggling to keep a roof over their heads right now. And we're not talking about building affordable uh, apartments. We're talking about building apartments. And the problem is affordability, not just 
what kind of things that are being built, but who they're being built for. And that requires federal spending. You can't do that by just lending money to developers. And the second part is that, you know, the provinces want the feds to spend more, but the official opposition at the federal level does not want to spend more. So how's that going to play out? And how is this budget going to speak to the increased political pressure on this government to do something instead of just playing steady as she goes? To your point earlier, it doesn't look like we're going to get to a deficit of zero anytime. Yeah, it's not a big deal. But I think what's a big deal is in the wake of all of these unpredictable things that have emerged in the last few months, we are not looking possibly at a contingency. The Ontario government blew up, uh, you know, a, a federal, uh, sorry, a, a provincial deficit uh, from just a few hundred million dollars to $5.6 billion for a contingency that nobody can see coming. I mean, will the feds have a similar thing like that? The only surprise I can see will be how the books are presented to the public. But I think the way Karina has reported, it is absolutely covers all the bases. So, so, so Jimmy, what, what would you hope to see there beyond what we already know uh, in terms of fiscal track, uh, fiscal anchor, preserving the AAA credit rating that, that is of critical importance to the federal government as it continues to borrow and add debt? Uh, what, what, do you, what would you like to see as, as a chief economist? Well, um, certainly a lot has been done. A lot has been uh, announced, uh, but uh, we've heard from, uh, you know, the Bank of Canada's governor and certainly the the frustration is understandable because, uh, you know, right now we have a Bank of Canada discovering that uh, monetary and fiscal policy coordination only works in one direction. And actually, the very reason we have an independent central bank uh, is because uh, political considerations will always dominate over the very difficult decisions that need to be taken uh, when you have to address economic overheating. Uh, you know, for example, we've seen Ontario extending its, its fuel tax break. We've seen Quebec with its larger than usual indexation of benefits. So it shows how really difficult it is to hold back when it comes to spending that's intended to address uh, a hardship situation. But the reality is that, you know, for the Bank of Canada, uh, all dollars matter right now. It can be transfers to households or it can be home building subsidies. They will slow the return to a 2% inflation target. Uh, so it doesn't say that as governments shouldn't be undertaken those um, those measures, especially given the needs of a fast-growing population, but it really means they have to make hard choices and really narrow down their priorities. Uh, they need to follow through and be seen as critical, credible because, uh, quite frankly, it's better for the Bank of Canada to issue this warning than for financial markets to start getting nervous. That's much less forgiving. Yes, uh, and, and I mean, we've spoken many times over the past little while of uh, your criticism of the, the Bank of Canada and how it's using monetary policy to uh, attack inflation when some of the issues, as you point out, are sort of beyond the reach of interest rates. But they have signaled this warning about government spending. But if you look at a note from like Scotiabank, a lot of the spending, like not the COVID spending, but the current spending from governments that's driving maybe basis points in the interest rate, it's coming from the provincial level and even the municipal level, not even necessarily the federal level. So what do you think Christian Freeland needs to do there tomorrow to sort of respond to the concerns that Tiff Macklem has laid out? Oh, I don't know how the two of them respond to each other's concerns. They have quite different jobs, as uh, Jimmy has pointed out. And I think the federal government needs to take more seriously some of the things it has done in the last couple of years to deal with the economic, not fiscal pressures, which, such as labor shortages, mm. where they've opened up the taps on newcomers. And that comes with a good side and a bad side. Yeah, you've got more workers, but those workers need a place to live. And they do put pressure 
on uh, more spending, which the Bank of Canada would like to see trimmed back. But how do you do that when you add over a million people? I, like, it's just, it, it doesn't square with the moment. It squares with economic uh, monetary theory that says all things stable, you shouldn't continue to add to spending. But if you're going to add um, over a million people to the equation, you're going to add spending. Mm. And we're doing that because businesses are saying we can't find people to do the work. So I think that, that that's the double-edged sword that I think will not be addressed in the fall economic statement because it's such an incredibly difficult thing to solve. You push in the balloon on immigration and bring in fewer people, you've got more labor shortages. You push in the balloon on labor shortages, you've got more housing problems. This goes completely beyond interest rate policy to a policy of if you're going to bring more people in, where are they supposed to live and how are you supporting that? So, and Jimmy, on that point, I mean, Christian Freeland uh, quotes Janet Yellen a lot and talks about supply-side economics to justify the investments in childcare, for example, and immigration numbers. It, it seems like their economic policy, industrial policy, as well as the clean transition, maybe collides with the monetary policy of the Bank of Canada, you know, and, and there's a tension there, right? So how do you try to address that tomorrow? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, the... When we look at the um, green uh, technology uh, subsidies, uh, you know there, there's a lot that's been done, and uh, but you know at the same time we don't know the full cost of uh, uh, of what it will be. You know the the Volkswagen agreement was fully uh, accounted for, but uh, you still have Stellantis and, and Northvolt to fully account for. Um, and, and you know how much exactly are we talking about when the spending is booked? Uh, we we don't know yet. There's things like changes to uh, home heating and fuel carbon taxes, uh, and very importantly, the increase in support to rural households as part of that package, how much that will cost. Uh, ultimately, uh, we talked earlier about the negotiations around a, a national pharmacare plan. You know, 11 to 14 billion is the PBO's estimate for how much that would cost annually. So we're not going to see that being announced tomorrow at that price tag. But are there going to be other concessions to satisfy the NDP? Uh, that's always a possibility. So that's kind of what worries me is that, you know, there's so much uh, that's uh, unaccounted for in terms on the spending side. And we know that the economy is deteriorating. Canada's economic growth has basically stagnated. Uh, so pressures on the bottom line will continue to remain uh, important. And, and that's why uh, a really focused uh, approach when it comes to spending is necessary at this time. Okay, Armin, we got about 30 seconds left. You got a final point? Yeah, I do, actually. There's not just the pressure from the NDP, it's the pressure from the Conservatives. And it's not just the pressure of a declining economy and keeping a tight rein on spending. It's the pressure of a government that is responsible to prevent further decline by spending. So, you know, that's what happens when you're in government. You've got to work these two sides of the ledger. It isn't just about don't spend and everything will be fine. The problem is if you don't spend, how will things deteriorate? That is also a relevant question. Yes, there's a cost to spending and there's a cost to not spending. It depends on, on how you tally and calculate those. All right, Armin Yalnizian and Jimmy Jean will speak to you again tomorrow when we have all of the information and we can give a, a proper analysis. Thanks so much uh, for helping us set it up. Thank you for having us. And we will have special coverage of the fall economic statement tomorrow on CBC News Network. Our chief political correspondent, Rosemary Barton, is going to be the host starting at 4 p.m. I'll be riding shotgun with Rosie. That's at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. And then we'll bring you a special edition of Power and Politics at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, right here.
A group of 28 premature babies arrived in Egypt today. They were evacuated from Gaza's largest hospital. Several other babies died there when incubators were knocked out after a loss of power and a collapse of medical services. As fighting intensifies around hospitals in Gaza's north, Doctors Without Borders says its teams are under fire. Joseph Bellavo is executive director of Doctors Without Borders here in Canada, and he joins us now. Joseph, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, David. I, I want to start there, if I can, on the whole issue of, of doctors being under fire, because we do know that a Doctors Without Borders clinic near Al-Shifa Hospital came under fire this morning. How many people do you have sheltering there? What can you tell us about this incident? Yeah, we have about uh, 20 people <clears throat> sheltering in that particular uh, facility. Um, and uh, maybe, maybe just to back up, just to give this a, a little bit of context, um, because uh, essentially for the last week and a half, uh, healthcare, the health healthcare services have basically ground to a halt in, in all of northern Gaza. And our teams, MSF, Doctors Without Borders colleagues, other medics and patients have sim- simply gone into pure survival mode, just literally trying to dodge bullets, stay low, uh, as as Al Shifa and, and and other hospitals have come under direct and sustained uh, fire, so uh, on Saturday we uh, negotiated uh, with both parties to conflict uh, an agreement that we could evacuate a number of people, uh, 137 people to be precise, uh, in a convoy, five five cars, a number of people also walking, very clearly marked with the MSF uh, logo, very clearly visible. And we had a, uh, had a green light from both parties to, to conflict to evacuate this number of people. Now, we had gotten down to uh, the very last checkpoint. So we'd gotten through a, a few of the checkpoints. The very last one um, was clogged up and crowded. Uh, so despite having pre-permission to be able to get through that checkpoint, we could not. Mm. That convoy had to turn back. Uh, and on the way back, the convoy came under fire. One of uh, one family member of an MSF colleague was killed uh, in that incident, and another critically wounded. Now those five cars and those people went back to try to find shelter as best that they could, uh, and some of them went back to the MSF uh, clinic that you just referred to. Now, uh, as of as of today, that clinic has come under. This is a clinic that we were doing outpatient services for burn wounds. Uh, many of them, as you can imagine, that clinic, uh, as of today, came under direct uh, fire uh, and uh, and was also burned. So it was liter- literally in in flames. Um, the five cars that we had used to for these evacuation purposes, four of them were burned, lit on fire, and one of them crushed by some kind of heavy machinery and split in two and just and just crushed. So um, as, as you said, 20 people now uh, hold up in, uh, or they were holed up in this facility that is now on fire and has come under direct attack. So this, the, this situation of repeated violence and brutality and direct attacks on civilians and clearly marked humanitarian vehicles and medical spaces is is absolutely egregious and off the charts. Oh, okay, there's a lot there uh, in, in that answer. So you, you say the it's under fire. Do you know who this is? Is this Hamas? Is it Islamic Jihad? Is it the Israel Defense Forces? Do you know who is shooting at this uh, shelter? We, we, we can't confirm any particular shot fired or any particular in, incident. We know that uh, that there's intense fighting uh, around these uh, these medical facilities, and we certainly know uh, from the pattern uh, 
uh, of, of incidents that has of, of occurred up to now that uh, it, that Israeli drones and um, and airstrikes uh, are are a part of this. That Israeli tanks are involved. Uh, I can't confirm in this particular case who's firing shots and who's not firing shots, but we've certainly seen a repeated pattern here. And, and Joseph, when we say under fire, are we talking gunfire? Are we talking like machine guns, pistols? Or are we talking like RPGs? Are we talking uh, airstrikes, rockets? What 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 are we talking about there? Yeah, good, a good mix uh, of, of, of all those things, really. Um, what we've heard most of over the last days are uh, a sniper fire uh, and airstrikes uh, and, and tank uh, tank fire. So, um, and, and this, again, you know, goes back to this past week when we've had uh, uh, staff and patients just in, cowed in corners in, inside of hospitals uh, trying to protect themselves. My colleague described how two nurses uh, to to medic, uh, not MSF, but but nurses uh, were were shot uh, because they be, they got too near to to an open space and were shot at. Uh, airstrikes um, apparently hit. They reported again, repit, uh, hit people who were trying to evacuate from Al Shifa. This is just days ago. So I think really a combination of the different types of uh, of attacks. Uh, since since we last spoke, uh, I, I know we, we spoke about your concerns about what's happening at, at Al Shifa because of the presence of the IDF there and, and the concerns about people's safety. We've seen a series of videos being released by the Israel Defense Forces as proof, they say, that Hamas was operating out of this hospital and continues to operate in other hospitals. Does Doctors Without Borders have any response to that? I mean, how do we square this with the, the reassurances that we've had from, from others involved in this, that there, there was no meaningful Hamas presence or visible Hamas presence in any of these facilities? We just we just can't square it. Uh, you know, I, I can't say definitively how close where Hamas had its bases exactly, where it's been hiding exactly. But certainly what my colleagues have repeatedly said over and over is that these were these were fully functional, comprehensive medical spaces where we were providing surgical care and nutritional care and maternal care and newborn care. And 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 we've never heard my colleagues have never shared anything related to to Hamas being anywhere near inside of these facilities so i i just can't square it we know that these these facilities were used for medical purposes we know that they were deliberately uh, uh targeted and systematically deprived of the essentials um water and and supplies necessary uh to to run medical facilities that's that's what we know so the situation now is uh, many of these facilities are not functioning. You, you say you have your staff, they're sort of pinned down, and the cars they were going to use for the evacuation have either been crushed or, or set on fire. What is your sense? I, I'm assuming some communication has been restored because you have some details of what's going on. Just what level of health care is functioning inside Gaza right now and, and the probability or the chances for your people to get to safety as they tried to do? Yeah, and, you know, it, it just gets worse and worse, which is unimaginable. The only health care, if you could call it that, uh, at this stage and anywhere in, in northern uh, Gaza is just the heroic efforts of individual medics. Uh, I think I think last time we spoke, David, I mentioned a colleague, a, a surgeon uh, of ours who's taken uh, three uh, children yeah. who've lost their parents. This goes back to that acronym, you know, uh, uh, wounded child, no surviving uh, family, WCNSF. Uh, the, uh, 
taken those those children un, under under his wing uh, a couple of other medics just sort of you know working uh, to 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 treat wounds with whatever materi- materials they can uh, be be with their patients um, try to get water to them if if they can but but this is just sort of human to human. This is not within a functional health system. It's palliative in a way, right? It's offering comfort as best you can without actually providing healing, right? Some of, some of it is certainly palliative. Also, knowing that uh, that, that patients have died uh, because of the, because of the services have been have been cut, and many more uh, really uh, face that prospect as well. Right. Okay. So just as a final question, Joseph, like you said, you tried to get 137 people out. I know at least one of them uh, was killed in what happened. And that is obviously uh, difficult uh, for your team. But is there any hope or any chance that the rest of them can get out? Do you have any idea? I don't know. I I, I don't know at this stage. I, I, I don't even know how now. We don't have vehicles anymore. Uh, we 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 know that even when we're getting the permissions, uh, clearly it's still not safe. It's uh, so I, I I don't know what happens next. I mean, if you just if you just look at this pattern of repeated uh, attacks on civilians, a complete disregard for for non-combatants uh, in 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 this conflict, the, the systematic targeting of the health facilities clearly marked uh, MSF uh, vehicles, the deprivation of food and of water and of, like it's, I don't know, I don't know where it goes from here. You, as, as you know, we've called for, for a ceasefire that almost sounds tiny compared to what's happening, but certainly we need this immediate ceasefire. We need the, the, the stop to the bomb so we can just even start to talk about evacuations again and start to talk about how you bring a measure of humanity back into a place where humanity has just been crushed. Joseph, I'm very sorry uh, for the loss of a family member of one of your team, and, and I hope uh, your team members are able to get to safety. Thanks again, Joseph Bellavo for Doctors Without Borders for joining us today. Thank you, David. Tomorrow's fall economic statement dominated question period today. Will they come back tomorrow with a plan to balance the budget so we can bring down interest rates and inflation so that Canadians can keep their homes? We've got funds that that have been depleted for social housing that need to be replenished. And there's further work to do on strengthening competition uh, laws in Canada. So are these initiatives that we're going to see in the fall economic statement or are Canadians going to be left waiting again? The Deputy Prime Minister will table additional aspects of that plan tomorrow in the fall economic statement. But let's be clear, we are here for Canadians every single step of the way, unlike the party opposite that votes against every single time. Okay, so here's what's been leaked out and reported so far about tomorrow. The CBC has learned and reported that billions of dollars for housing construction and new mortgage rules uh, to help people who borrow will be announced tomorrow. The Toronto Star is reporting there will be a crackdown on people who profit from short-term rental programs like Airbnb. And Reuters is expecting Minister Freeland to announce legislation to launch subsidies for carbon capture and clean tech. Continuing that economic transition from the budget. Okay, let's talk about this with the power panel. Lisa Raitt is a former conservative cabinet minister, now vice chair of global investment banking, CIBC Capital Markets, so you know she's watching tomorrow closely. Brad Levine is with Council Public Affairs. And here with me in studio, Stevie O'Brien is a senior advisor at Macmillan Vantage, and Rob Russo is the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief, now writing for The Economist. Okay, Stevie, we saw Anita Anand, who you used to work with uh, uh, back in the day. I mean, what do you make of what we've heard so far uh, about the financial plan uh, that 
that we're going to see laid out by Christopher Freeland tomorrow. Well, I think it's, it's pretty clear, and I'm hearing what everyone else is hearing, that there are going to be two themes tomorrow, affordability and housing. Right. And I think what's a little bit unfortunate for the Liberals is that we're on uh, a bit of a back foot defending a track record on affordability. Like, it's something uh, that's new, that all of a sudden a new policy, they've been painted in the corner to demonstrate their credentials. We're really affordability um, policy has been liberal bread and butter since day one. We just called it something else, called it middle-class prosperity. Right. But if you look at everything that the government has been doing since 2015 with the Canada Child Benefit, with changes to uh, the, Canadian, the, the CPP and old age security and the new changes to uh, child care policy, um, these are all been affordability measures that the government has been doing, even middle-class tax cuts. Yeah. And I think we'd be in a much worse affordability crisis if they hadn't been so focused on it uh, for so long. So, uh, Lisa, uh, Steve, you make some points there. There's been a lot of things aimed at middle and working class Canadians, but inflation has caused groceries to spike, and now interest rates are up, and it's put a whole new suite of challenges right on Christian Freeland's lap. What what do you make about what we've heard so far as as they're sort of planned to, to deal with these issues? I think those are interesting and good news things that they're putting out there, um, and I'm not really surprised. It's the hidden ones that I'm looking forward to. Like, is there going to be an emissions cap in Alberta? Is there going to be, are there going to be Indigenous loans for resource projects, and what does that look like? And are they going to do anything in this fall economic update to address Alberta's current, I guess, um, uh, plan uh, to go to some kind of uh, vote with respect to the Canada Pension Plan. I'm, I'm curious to see if they're going to go in those three areas. Yeah, but Brad, the sense I get is this is going to be a slimmer, narrower, more tightly focused than certainly the fall economic statements we've seen sort of since COVID landed on our shores, right? And the economic rhythms of things force them to, to, to go big. Um, I, I don't think we're going to see anything on Pharmacare. Do you think Jagmeet Singh will be satisfied with this tomorrow? He's kind of indicated he's not expecting it. Yeah, I, I, I'm not expecting uh, pharmacare, but that's a whole other that's a whole other uh, topic that we should tackle before the end of the calendar year because uh, there's some important deadlines with the uh, supply and confidence agreement. Uh, but on the on the more narrow focus, I mean, one of the things we, we've talked about it many times on this panel is the Liberal Party's inability to actually uh, carry the tune. Uh, far too many priorities. Uh, horrible communications. Um, you know, Steve was mentioning that, that they're, they're on the defense at this stage. No, no question about that. I, I completely agree. So, will a more focused uh, agenda uh, do better? You know, we talk about the, the things like affordability and housing as the two major sets. The, the, the problem that they have, though, is that the housing measures that have already been, quote, leaked, that is, advanced, obviously, by the uh, finance minister's office and by uh, Treasury Board. Uh, they're not going to have the effects that I think the Liberal Party is hoping for many years. We are maybe 18 months, maybe 24 months away from the next election. Are those measures that are going to be announced tomorrow, the loans, uh, the money for the, the housing, will they be uh, taking effect and, and taking hold uh, before Canadians go to the polls? They're getting squeezed. Liberals or the New Democrats are asking them to spend more money on things like affordable housing. Meanwhile, you've got the Conservatives who are calling for a balanced budget. So it's going to be interesting to see how they, they manage the squeeze. Yeah, so Rob, it's like $15 billion uh, for 10-year loans for rental construction. This is on top of the GST break that, that they gave earlier in the year. So they're kind of doubling down on that. And, and the GST one apparently has spurred some projects going forward that were marginal. But, you know, Brad's got a point in, in that all of this takes time. Uh, but, uh, 
you, you know, uh, what's your sense of how this might affect the political mood? Well, I, I think that uh, they know that they have limited options to do things immediately. They're, they're, mm-hmm. the, the levers that they can pull are being constrained by the Bank of Canada. They, they can't go against the bank's um, desire to try and rein in inflation. Uh, so what can they do? Uh, I, I think the, the Stevie's point about affordability, I think, is a very good point. Uh, and the middle class um, uh, is another uh, interesting part of that. Um, I'm going to look for what are they going to do to help people who already own homes, the middle class, but who are struggling in order to hang on to their homes, whose mortgages right. are going to come due this year. Uh, Karina was on earlier and talking about the the Canadian Mortgage Charter. I'm, I'm interested uh, to find yeah. out what the details are of that. But those people who already have homes, already have jobs, and are struggling, uh, struggling to pay all the bills, I'm going to I'm going to be watching to see what they do because I think those are the people who are going to control what happens in the next election campaign. That's new Canadians often right. uh, buying their who already just bought their first home and uh, Gen Xers, who are want to buy their first home as well and who supported the Liberals in the past. Right, because the the new mortgage uh, rules that that you're talking about, there's a part of a six-point charter that builds on the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada's existing guidelines and put requirements, Stevie, on the banks to reach out to people in advance, let them know that their mortgage is coming up, and and sort of reassure them. Because one of the challenges, I'm one of the unlucky people who renewed their mortgage already, so I'm already (laughs) feeling that hit, but a lot more Canadians over the next year and they need to do something to help people there, right? It's not even necessarily about people getting into the market. It's people in the market now who are going to take a smack. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, we mentioned the next election could be anywhere between 6 and 24 months from now. And how the economy sort of recovers and how the interest rates go and how how people feel about housing at the next election is really going to... Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to dictate, I think, the outcome. And some of these measures that we're announcing or the government's announcing now are not going to necessarily have a meaningful impact um, by the time we go to the polls. But some of them, like the uh, the leaks around the short-term rental, those could have immediate impacts. I right. think Minister Freeland uh, was... Uh, suggesting that something like 30,000 units could become almost immediately available by making changes and disincentives to short-term rentals. And that's, that's, a, that's an immediate uh, increase of supply. Yeah, so, so Lisa, on that point, right, this is essentially, uh, this was first reported, I believe, by Stephanie Levitz in the Toronto Star, so I want to make sure I'm given appropriate credit. Uh, but you've seen municipalities, for example, Victoria, British Columbia, that have cracked down on Airbnb and Verbo and all of these short-term rental things, uh, putting restrictions there. And essentially, it's a proposal by the finance department to partner with that and say you can't deduct your expenses against the income you make off of that uh, as a federal tax break as a designed to push more uh, assets onto the long-term market and get it off that short-term market. What, what do you make of that yeah. kind of an approach to, to attacking this problem? Is that unfair to people who invested in Airbnb properties under a certain set of rules or is it just what you got to do to get things uh, back to level? You know what? It really reminds me of the decision that the Conservatives had to take with respect to income trust funds, income trusts. And the reason being is that the rules are in place. A lot of people have made investments based upon the rules that were in place. And now the rules are changing. So when you say 30,000 homes may come on the market, I think 30,000 to 60,000 really ticked off people who suddenly had the rules changed for them. And then, as you point out, David, Couple that with the fact that they're looking at possibly hikes in their mortgage rates. They're really considering whether or not they're going to be able to afford it at all. So will they come on the market? Maybe. Are they going to be actually opened up to long-term rentals? 
I don't know about that. I don't know if you can actually make that direct assumption that that's the part it's going to solve, but it's certainly going to cause a lot of flux in the market. Brian, just to go back to your point that uh, the housing uh, measures may not be felt uh, by the next election. Do the Liberals have a housing problem or do the Liberals have an interest rate problem? Because when you look at the polling trend line, it's right after Tiff Macklem ended his pause in June and July and did the back-to-back increases that the bottom just went out of Liberal support. What's your read on it? Yeah, no kidding. No, I would say door number two. Uh, They've got an interest rate uh, problem. Um, Not that there isn't a housing problem, but... Uh, no, you know, no, no, there's, there, no, no, but, but I, I think what, what is directly af- uh, impacting their polling numbers, um, we, we've, we've had a housing uh, challenge for many, many years, particularly in our larger uh, urban markets, Toronto, uh, Vancouver in particular. But uh, since these interest rates have gone through the roof, what you're seeing is, and, it's, and it, you, know, you, you hear the uh, governor of the Bank of Canada talk about, it takes 12, 18 months for policies to work themselves through uh, the marketplace. So that means that you know decisions that they're making currently aren't aren't going to have a, an impact on these. But the one thing, and this is uh, this is a, a, I think a very important point. When we take a look at the political calendar, and we take a look at when all of those Canadians are going to be going and renewing their mortgages, you know these folks are going to be coming in at a much higher rate than they're than they're used to. And if they're if they're on a fixed payment. They're going to be paying like you know 80, 90 cents on every dollar to interest. Uh, nothing's happened to the home. The only thing that's changing is is the banks and the Bank of Canada are, are taking a bigger slice of the pie. That is infuriating uh, to a large swath of middle class. So it's, it's it, it it could set up a perfect storm for the Liberals uh, at election time. The calendar is not their friend uh, at this stage. Uh, Rob, there's going to be a push, as there always is in these moments, uh, for, for the government to start reducing the deficit, reducing debt to GDP, mm-hmm. try to get some sort of a target back to balance, which I, I, I don't know if we're going to see. The PBO said last month that a deficit of $47 billion is likely up from just under $39 billion. What, what do you expect to see on the fiscal track of the, of well, the country? Well, I, I know Karina and others have said that there, there won't be a, a, a sort of milestone, but uh, I, I was, I was uh, told today that there will be, that you, you might have to kind of strain your eyes uh, to, to see it on the <laughs> horizon, but there, there will be a milestone that suggests uh, that they are going to uh, sort of set out a target or set out something that shows that they are going to try to become uh, more fiscally responsible, if not uh, get, get to balance. I want to go back to your point, though, about interest rates versus housing, which I think yep. is a really important point. Uh, that, that same smart person who, who works uh, for the prime minister said uh, that you know, uh, one of the things that a lot of us in the media look at is uh, got country going in the right direction or wrong direction. Yeah. One of the things that, that they're looking at is how are we doing on housing? That's the barometer they're looking at. Uh, and even if interest rates go down, given uh, the desire of those people, new Canadians uh, and, and Gen Xers to get into the housing market, there will still be a housing shortage once those interest rates come down. And those people are going to feel like they're being denied the Canadian dream if they don't have access to that. So even though it might seem like it's absolutely true, we've got to build five, five million houses uh, over the next 10 years, something mm-hmm. like that, they've got to show some sort of roadmap to get there for those sections of the electorate that are going to be key in the next uh, campaign. Right. And, and so, Stevie, because also a key part of the economic agenda of this government is growth through immigration and population growth to fill labor gaps because of the demographics of the country and all of these workers we want to bring into the country are going to need somewhere to live, so the pressure is on there. So how do you do that and also nod to fiscal restraint and the need to maybe reduce deficits and, and preserve that AAA credit rating for the long term? 
And in addition, you are also going to need more workers to build all of these houses on the right. timelines that are associated, which go back to the immigration point. So it is definitely uh, an interconnected, an interconnected problem. Um, I think you're going to see a very Minister Freeland walking a very thin line between trying to demonstrate fiscal restraint, which I think everyone is expecting and seeing those sort of uh, that narrow fiscal update as opposed to a mini budget. Mm -hmm. But on the same time, there are pressures not just from um, the conservative opposition, but from the NDP to demonstrate movement on uh, things that are important to the supply and confidence agreement. And I think, well, maybe not pharmacare, Jagmeet has definitely indicated that he's looking for changes, something to address the groceries. Right, on competition, so I think for example. That's the competition. That's something I will be, I will be looking yeah. forward, or I'm, I'm interested in seeing, um, because back around Thanksgiving, you'll remember Minister Champagne had sort of given an ultimatum to a lot of the big grocery chains, and I think uh, tomorrow we might see um, the consequences of, of them not sort of coming to the table more. Right, we might see the follow-up to that. But uh, Lisa, just on the fiscal track, right? I, I mean, you work in the world of banking. Um, we don't really know where growth is going in a lot of places in the world right now. We don't, we're not really sure on interest rates. There's still some volatility in, from country to country. It's different in Europe than it is here, for example, and different maybe in the United States. How do you even approach laying out you know, a, a prudent path to sort of like getting back to a balanced budget and these sorts of things with all of the sort of tumult uh, that exists right now that could just blow your assumptions out of the water? Well, I, I think what it starts with is recognizing that short-term measures aren't going to work and that you have to have a long-term vision of how to move this economy in the right direction. To your point about whether or not you're going to see growth, you're not going to see growth, and you're not going to see growth because the productivity in Canada is worse than it was in 2014. So how do you address productivity? You encourage businesses to train. And how do you get them to invest? Well, you got to make sure that there's a good economic climate. So these things are long long-term things that have to be done, but you got to start now. And what I hope I see in tomorrow's fall economic update is to at least see some nod towards the big structural issues in Canada's economy that do have to be addressed, that it's not just about housing and it's not just about short-term crunches that we're feeling right now, which are very real. But if we don't make it through the long-term, growth is not certain. Brad, just a, a quick final point. Do you expect to see any kind of meaningful cuts and spending reduction, retirement of you know old programs or unnecessary programs? Mean, do you expect to see anything on that side yeah. uh, in the plan tomorrow? Yeah, I, I do. And, and the, the quick reason is, is, is because that is the, the fastest and easiest part. These aren't entitlement programs that people are become to, you know, to rely on. They're you know, internal to the federal government. Most Canadians wouldn't know uh, of these things. So, we, you, you know, there'll be... That's where, uh, you know, the president of the Treasury Board was saying that she's going to be getting, mm-hmm. uh, you, know, her fi- you know, the fiscal house in order. They're going to start there. So I'm going to see, you're going to see big numbers tomorrow in terms of cuts to certain agencies. Uh, obviously, the military, uh, the Department of Defense has already been flagged as being among the, the biggest hits uh, that it's taking, which is another kind of contradiction of the, of the liberal policy. But yes, there'll be, I'm, I'm going to be looking forward to a lot of these agency cuts because that's where, the, that's where they're going to signal that they're becoming fiscally prudent. Okay, Brad Levine, Lisa Raitt, Stevie O'Brien, Rob Russo, thank you so much for your time. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.